0: And I love the reality of the book of Hebrews as we've been going through it, that Jesus is better. He's better than everything. And as we go through each book, each uh, uh, each uh, chapter that is, and each verse, we find His greatness on every page. And we're continuing this morning in the book of Hebrews. Uh, if you have your Bible this morning, turn to the book of Hebrews. It's in your New Testament. Uh, that means it's closer to the farther end of your uh, Bible, and I encourage you to turn there to Hebrews chapter number six is where we'll be this morning. And starting in verse number nine, I'm so thankful for the wonderful message we heard last week uh, uh, thankful for uh, Pastor Nate and just the wonderful job he did. I'm thankful for uh, men of God that have that God has gathered here that uh, are just faithful in the Word of God. Pastor Nathan and Pastor Nate and others that God brings here, and uh, just so thankful for the Word of God. And it's just so good to hear just the simplicity of the Word of God. You know what you need today? You don't need funny stories from me. You don't need my opinion. You know what you need? You need the Word of God. That's what you need. And so my goal this morning is to simply just present the word of God and allow it to encourage you and to help you here today. And uh, I just want to try to be uh, just a vessel this morning to get out of the way and let God do what He wants to do. Last week uh, we kind of concluded on the reality that there are some that they begin to produce the wrong kind of fruit. They begin to produce thistles and thorns and. Um, There are those that uh, begin to show themselves, as it were, and we kind of conclude in verse 8 on that reality that although the uh, water or the rain as it is, it falls on the just and the unjust, that... Fruit reveals who we truly are in Christ. And we know that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, long suffering, and meekness and temperance, and many of those beautiful things that God is. But also the other side of that is that when we are given to sin, that there's also a fruit with that as well. And, and so we pick up with a pivot in the passage today. In Hebrews chapter six, verse number nine, we see the word but. Okay, now if my kids were in here, they'd be giggling, okay? Uh, But they're not here, so hopefully you can keep it together, okay? Uh, We see a transition in the passage. And we love this word because it means something is about to change in the narrative. It it says in verse number 9, But beloved, that is to say, part of the family of God, brothers and sisters, ones that have received Christ. He says this, But beloved, we are persuaded. That is to say, we believe. Better things of you and things that accompany salvation. We believe that the things that we talked about, the fruit that is the fruit of unrighteousness will not be named among you. But we believe that based upon your fruit, that you will continue to walk in the fruit of salvation. The things that accompany salvation Though we thus speak, he says, look, it's important that we explain what the fruit of unrighteousness is. But we believe that you are one that will walk in the fruit of righteousness. That you will do the things that, mind you, I want want you to be very careful here. It says, the things that accompany salvation. It doesn't say the things that earn salvation. It says that salvation, out of salvation, flows the work of God. It is not working for God that earns salvation. It is the fact that we have been saved, that that from that salvation, we now are given to the fruits of the Spirit. And he says, these are the things that accompany salvation. He says, I know I've been blunt about the realities of these types of people, but I don't believe that of you. I believe better of you and that your works will continue as evidence of your salvation Continue reading verse number 10. For God is not unrighteous. God is not unrighteous like we are. That is to say, uh, we don't think, we don't behave, we don't act the way uh, that God necessarily does by His nature. By our nature, we do the things that are contrary. But God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Uh reminder that those that are being written to in this passage, the writer uh, of Hebrews is writing to people that are discouraged. And they're discouraged because they're literally being hunted down. They're discouraged because they've watched some of their uh, the, the the people in the church are going back to their old ways, the old ways of the law. They're discouraged because uh, some of them have had to leave their homes. They've been literally persecuted and scattered abroad. and And he says, look, this is your current situation, but I want you to know this, although you're discouraged right now, God has not forgotten you. Although you're struggling right now with what you're dealing with in life, although there's hardships that are presently upon you, God has not forgotten you. You know, uh, uh, maybe some of you have been in a situation where you worked faithfully for a company for 10 years or 20 years. And then you went through a time where maybe you had a loss or maybe you were going through sickness and. And so you went through a season, maybe a year or two years or three years where you weren't as productive as you had been before. And instead of that company being gracious with you, instead of them being kind to you and realizing that you're going through a hardship, they forget the decades of faithfulness and labor of love that you've given them. And they simply just dismiss you because it's not working for them. That's the way the world works. But that is not the way God works. God is faithful and he reminds us and he remembers us when we're going through hardship that he is faithful, even though we might be struggling, even though we might be going through hardships. He says this, that God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which he have showed toward his name. Look, this labor of love is not just any kind of labor of love. It's a specific labor of love. Did you know that? One day we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And as we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, this is where believers end up. We stand at what is called the judgment seat of Christ. This is where believers, watch this, do not give an account for their sin. That is not, if you are saved here today, if you have placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, you will never have to give an account for your sin because your sin has been completely forgiven. But you will give an account for the good works that you have done in this life. And did you know that the delineation between good works and bad works at the judgment seat of Christ is the same phrase that we just saw here? It's whether or not you have done it for Jesus or for anything else. See, there's a lot of people in this life that do good works and it's because they want you to think they're a good person. There's people in this life that do good works because it's just easy. It's a tax write-off. They do good works because it makes them feel good. But my friend, the goal in serving is to serve because we are serving Jesus Christ. You know what happens if we don't serve for Christ? If I serve my wife, but I'm just serving it because I'm trying to get something out of her. What happens eventually in me serving my wife, when she quits giving me what I want, I become bitter at her and I quit serving her. Because I'm not serving her because of Christ. I'm serving her because of me. And that kind of service is actually selfish. It's actually me centered. If I serve you to get something out of you, really the end goal is me. And he reminds them here that these people, the labor of love that they had, these are good people. Although they're struggling right now, although they're discouraged right now, these are good people. These are God's people because the labor they did was for Jesus' name. Watch what he says here. He says, what you have showed toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints, to brothers and sisters, and that you still minister. That is to say the word minister means you're a servant to those around you. I reminded this week I had the privilege to go up to Pennsylvania and speak at a a youth conference, a youth retreat, a winter retreat. And and uh, by the way, I'm thankful to be back in Florida where the sun is always shining and it's beautiful. And I never want to leave again. Amen. 28 degrees makes you rethink life real quick. Okay, what am I doing up here? It's cold. Got up there and uh, I had the privilege uh, to, to preach four different times to the to the the, the group of teenagers and. I do want to report the goodness of God was all over that thing. And uh, several young people placed their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And and it was good. It was good. God was at work. But I reminded them one day, I said, you know, here's the reality that we live in. There is a reality that is among us that that the world is not supposed to know who we are by how big our churches are. The world is not supposed to know who we are and who we serve because of how well uh, we we know verses, Did you know that there's a lot of people that know the Bible and can quote the Bible at length? It doesn't necessarily mean that they are approved of God. The the goal that God said that Christ said is this, that the world will know who we are. That's the church. That's us that have gathered here this morning. He said that the world will see a difference in us by our love one to another. The way we minister to each other was supposed to reveal to a world That's different than the way we do it. They love different than the way that we do. And he says, I have watched your faithfulness, your work of uh, work and labor of love. I watched that you've done it for the name of Christ, that you've ministered and served the saints and how you're still ministering. Watch this. They're in a point of persecution and discouragement and frustration, and they are still serving God. They've not stopped. Hey, I realize that there's times where we might be able to do a little bit more for God and a little bit less. But it should never be that we're not doing anything for God. Hey, I don't know what your situation is this morning, but he's always worthy of you serving him. He's always worthy. He continues in verse number 11. He says, and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence. Hey, what diligence is he talking about? He's talking about the diligence of the Lord. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. He said God is diligent in that He continues to be faithful to you. And He says if God is that faithful to you when you're struggling, when you're going through hard times, maybe you should strive to be that faithful to Him and to others. This same diligence leads to, watch what He says here, the full assurance of hope unto the end. Now, the word hope in the Bible is different than the word hope we use today. In, in In the Bible, when the word hope is used, it is an assured promise. It will happen. A lot of times we use the word hope and we go, well, we'll see. I hope so. For instance, let me give you a for instance. Um, Will both teams miraculously just fall on the ground tonight and not be able to finish the game? I hope so. (laughs) Once your team's out, it's like, I don't care anymore. Just I'm here for the snacks. That's all I'm here for. Give me some, you know, salsa and chips. I don't care. Lions lost, they're dead to me. I don't care. All right. <laughs> I hope so. But that's not the Bible hope. The Bible hope is a, a hope that will come to pass. It will come to pass. When he says the blessed hope, he's saying this is the promise we have that Jesus is coming again because he has promised it and he's going to beautifully expound on a promise of God in this passage. But he says it's a full assurance. Look, when... God promises something. It is a full assurance. It's full coverage. This morning, you might be in a position where you feel like God's a good God, but you might not have the full assurance that he is everything that you need. And I believe from the word of God this morning, as we continue in this passage, what you're going to see is that God desires that every one of us have a full assurance. Assurance. That is to say, it's not empty. There's not one part of it missing. Every part has been fulfilled. Everything that you need is in the person of Jesus Christ. See, oftentimes we desire to see uh, people keep trusting uh, uh, that hope of God. Uh, But the reality is, is we need to continue in that until the day that we see Him. Even though we're facing opposition. Even though we're facing persecution. That we would be diligent as the Lord is. Then He makes the... Kind of contrast here. In verse 11, he talks about diligence. Watch verse number 12. That ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, look, be diligent like the Lord, but don't be slothful. See, there is an easy happening of the church sometimes. And I would say this, that sometimes I think it's the problem might be in the pulpit sometimes, maybe not always, but sometimes that sometimes we have a version of Christianity that really doesn't expect for Christians to give up anything, to surrender anything, to to actually live their faith and speak their faith, to to actually share their faith. But what Christ says is don't be slothful with the hope that you've been given. Don't don't misuse this gift. You need to be faithful in it. I'm reminded often that the true definition of worship is sacrifice. The true definition of worship is sacrifice. You might have come this morning, you said, Oh, I've come to gather this morning to, to, to worship. And my question would be back to you, Okay, what did you sacrifice? You might say, Well, I sacrificed time and I gave it to the Lord. Okay, but in your worship, what are you surrendering to Him? If we're not careful, it's easy for us to become slothful, apathetic in our relationships with God. He says, But I. Would prefer verse 12. He says that you be not slothful, but followers. The word there, the Greek word is imitators. It literally has the idea of someone that you are you are mirroring their image. You are doing as they did that you would be followers or imitators of who of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. See, the promises of God will always be true, but they're not on your timetable. They're on his. And so when God makes a promise, the promise is not whether or not it will happen. The promise is whether or not you will have the patience to wait for it to happen. The promise is going to happen. That's who God is. And he's going to talk about his nature here in the next couple of verses. That promise is going to happen. The question then becomes, but are you patient enough to let the promise happen? Are you willing to be faithful when you can't tell what's going on? He says, be diligent, not slothful. Be like the Lord, not like the world. You know, we all get discouraged. I don't know. Maybe some of you in this room and, and you don't have to raise your hand this morning. But if you're honest, you're in a state of discouragement. You're in a state of feeling overwhelmed. Maybe there's situations that you're walking through. Literally, you're here this morning and you know you've got some things that you're dealing with. You know it. And you're sitting in here and, and you want God to encourage you. You want God to change your, your, your demeanor, your perspective, your situation, your standing. You want God to do that. And, and I remind you of the, the, the imitation of a man in the Old Testament. The Bible says that there was a man named David in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. And it said, and David encouraged himself. Is that where it stops? No, David encouraged himself in the Lord. See, the problem a lot of times in the church is this, is we get into situations and we think that it's our responsibility to encourage ourselves. That, you know, the old adage, well, I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and make it happen. I'm going to gut it out. I'm going to grind it out. And my friend, that only goes so far before you are exhausted and overwhelmed. But that's not what David did. David encouraged himself and the Lord. He surrendered the situation to the Lord. He said, God, it's bigger than me, but smaller than you, God. Here you are. It's your problem, not my problem. It's more than I could handle, but just enough for you to handle. And David encouraged himself and Lord, look, if you get nothing out of this message this morning, if you're in here this morning and you feel overwhelmed, you're in a position right now where you're not sure which way to go. You you feel your, your life kind of pulling you apart. You feel the anxiety, depression, stress, situations that are beyond your ability. If you get nothing out this morning, I want you to hear that there's a God in heaven that wants you to call upon him and he will encourage you today. This is not whether or not he wants to. He wants to encourage you today. The Bible says David encouraged himself in the Lord. Can I remind you that this morning that in God's eyes, greatness is not building something big. It's not accumulating wealth. It's not becoming famous. Greatness with God is being faithful. And the Lord outlines... The desired end of all of us. This is what he said that we want to hear at the end. We want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. In that situation, he didn't say, well done, you built an empire. Well done, you amassed wealth. No, see, it would be foolish for him, God. To applaud that because he is the one that gave us the talents to do it. Therefore, the only reason we could have done any of that was because of him. So he is not impressed by our talents because he gave them to us. He's not impressed by those things. What impresses, what is needful, what is wanted by God is for you to decide to be faithful no matter what. Be faithful to God. Continue, he gives us an example, an Old Testament example of this in verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. That's God could obviously swear by no greater because there is no greater. So he said, I swear by my name. Verse 14, saying, surely blessing, I will bless thee. In multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently, after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now, I got a little beef with verse 12, OK? I say that kind of tongue in cheek. Verse, uh, excuse me, verse 15. Verse 15 here says this. And so after he had patiently endured. Now, some of you that know this story a little bit better know that that's an interesting way to put that. Say, so what do you mean? Well, let's unpack that. In Genesis 12, God speaks this promise that I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will give you a a, a people and a a nation. I'm going to do a work, Abraham. And and that's wonderful. At that time, Abraham is 75 years of age and he is being promised a son, a lineage. And, and, And it does come to happen in Genesis 21. God finally gives Isaac to Abraham. Mind you, 25 years later, he gives him that promise. But in between there, this guy that was just told that he was patient, got impatient. In Genesis chapter 16, this man gets so impatient that he ends up Having a relationship with his handmaid, and and that he has a child by the name of Ishmael. And Ishmael was not the son of promise, Isaac was. Ishmael was what man does when they get tired of waiting on God. And God rejects man's ways when they reject God's ways. Watch this. But it's interesting that in verse 15, it says after he had patiently endured. And who's he talking about? Abraham. Man, I I chewed on that for a while and I realized this. You know what God knows about me? God knows I'm going to fail. And he still wants to work with me. God knows that I'm going to mess up. God knows that I'm going to fall. He knows that I've got issues. He knows every one of them. And with me, there's a lot. The reality is, is he knows every one of those. And yet God is such a good God that even though he knows I'm going to fail, even though he knows that I'm nothing without him, that he still wants to continue to keep his promises, even though I'm going to fall. You know, the Bible says this, that a just man, that is a righteous person, someone who is a follower of God, falls seven times. But rises up again and the rest of that verse talks about the unrighteous you know what the unrighteous do they fall as well the only difference is they don't get back up God this morning reminds us in the example of Abraham that God is not calling you to be perfect he is calling you to be faithful God knows you're going to fall. God knows you're going to fail. God knows you're going to have a moment when you're going, but God, I don't know if you're really going to do it. I'm going to try it my way. I'm going to go my way and you're going to do that and you're going to make a mess and he's still going to love you. And he's still going to work with you and he's still going to be faithful even when you're not. That's why he says that we would be diligent as he is diligent, that we would be faithful as he is faithful verse 16 says here for men verily swear by the greater Uh, if you've ever had the the privilege to go into a courtroom and to put your hand on the Bible I swear to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth so help me and church help me God isn't it interesting it doesn't say so help me uh, Donald Trump so help me Joe Biden so help me George Washington no, you know why? Because we need to swear by one that is greater. Every man, at best, is a sinner. Every man and woman at best is, is a flawed reality. And so they must swear by a greater. And it's interesting here it says, um, "For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife." I don't know if you remember when you were younger, or maybe you still do this. I don't know. You'd say, "Do you promise? And they go, I promise. And then you either went to one of two ways after this. You went to do you pinky promise? And it was next level stuff. I mean, you pinky promise, man, true or. Maybe a little different generation remembers this cross my heart, hope to die. What's the last part? Sticka, which sounds so gross. Like, that was actually more, I'm like, no, that's nasty. I don't want to do that. It's interesting. We understand that you have to elevate it. You have to get it to a place. And when those that understand who God is finally go, you know what? The end of strife is when we go, this covenant is between us and God. And we go, okay. Because when you promise something to God, God will hold you to it. The Bible says in the Old Testament, it would be better that you did not promise him something than to promise God something and not pay it. So he swears by a greater. He says, I swear by God, by my name, that I will accomplish this Abraham. And God is always faithful to accomplish what he promises. Verse 17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs a promise. I'm going to stop there because I want to be very careful again. It says the heirs of promise. It doesn't say they earned the promise. It doesn't say that they earned the gift of God. It says that they were heirs. That is to say they were given it because of their position in the family. We do not earn this promise. You're not working your way to heaven this morning. God is the one who gives a free gift of salvation. The Bible says that the wages or the earning of sin is death. And that death is separation from God in a place called hell and ultimately the lake of fire. But the rest of that verse is important for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, there is a gift that is the counterpart of that, that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is a gift. And Ephesians put it this way. It's not of works, lest we would boast. If you got this gift given to you, you would get to heaven and you would be proud about it, you would be telling everybody, oh, I'm here because I earned it. I did this in the church. I did this for the Lord. I offered this many penance. A penance. I, I did this many Hail Marys. I did this many prayers. I, I was baptized this many times. I took the Lord's table this many times and the Lord would say, that's not what I wanted. I simply wanted you to receive the gift of salvation because it's not about what you can do. It's what I have already done in the person of Jesus Christ. That's Jesus Christ. It's not of works, lest we would get to heaven and we would just be walking around and tell everybody how great we are. He says this, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the immutability. Now, that's a word that we don't use as common in our culture today, but really all it means is unchangeable. And it says the immutability of his counsel. Have you ever Gone to somebody, maybe at different times of your life, and at one point you could ask them a question and and they would offer this advice. And so you go back to them and you already know what their answer is going to be. And you're like, well, I've already talked to them about this. This is what they're going to say. And you go back and you say, hey, I know we talked about this before, but what do you think about the situation? And they've changed. You know why? Because two reasons. Two reasons. Because men and women don't know everything. And so part of that change is good. It's growth. But part of that change is also the other side of change can be that we degrade away from truth. But there's a God that every time he gives counsel, it is true, it is right, and it is just. It is unchangeable that his counsel is always the right thing to do. When I was a kid, I used to travel around with my dad. We had the privilege uh, to go on uh, what's called... um basically, you go as a missionary, you go from church to church, and you raise support so that you can go be a missionary. My father and my family we were missionaries to Cuba for a time, and and so uh, we, we traveled around, just me and my dad, for a little while. We traveled uh, through the Midwest and uh, through the West, through Colorado and down, and then kind of back. It was about a six-month trip, and on that trip, my dad, uh, maybe you don't know this, but some preachers, they, they, they kind of just kind of rotate some messages. I don't know if you know that, uh, especially those missionaries, and so my dad had about three messages on that trip. That means I knew, every one of those messages I would sit there on the front row and I'd go and literally and, and, and like people would watch me and I would, I was I was literally like six or seven years old and so I would sit there and I would just basically be doing the whole message imitating him on the front row and, and sometimes he would call me up in the message and he'd say now John's going to help with this part of this message and and, and and I'd come up here and I could have done the whole message by that point by the way and, and, and he'd say okay now John help me with this message and he'd say okay John repeat after me and he'd go do right and I'd go do. And and he, okay, good job, job, John. Okay, do it again. Do right. Do right. You know, I just hit puberty like last week. So I'm so thankful that the changes happened. Uh, And and so, and, and then he said, just keep saying, do right, do right, do right, do right. He said, you know what the best thing about doing right is? You're never doing wrong. You know what it is to do right? It's to follow a God Who his counsel is always right. It never changes. If God has said it, it is good. It is righteous. And it is his path and his plan for your life. God is an unchangeable God. God says he confirmed it by oath. That is to say, he confirmed it by his own name. He, he he promised that he would be this. And continue with me, verse 18. That by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. Did you hear that? You say, what does that mean that it's impossible for God to lie? And now... If I ask a hundred people and I and I've, I've done this many times and I'll say, what do you think the number one characteristic of God is? And oftentimes, very quickly, people say, well, God is love. And he is. But that is not the most important characteristic of God. See, the truth is, is if his number one attribute was love. But he wasn't holy, that love wouldn't mean anything. The number one attribute of God is His holiness. Therefore, if God were to tell one lie, one lie, not only would He cease to be God, but because He's a God that holds everything in the universe together, the universe would cease to exist. Because He is the creator and sustainer of all things. And this God is the God who makes promises to you and I. That our salvation is one of those promises that this God that cannot lie. See, we have and then he continues, he said, because now that you know that God cannot lie, we have a strong consolation. It's interesting the wording here. He didn't just say you have consolation. That is to say a comfort to you. He says, it should be a comfort to you to know that God can't lie. But then he says, it's not just something that should come for you. This should be a big part of your comfort to know that if God has said it, he does it. That's what he does. He said, every day when you get up, you should remind yourself that God made a promise and he's going to keep his promises. By the way, if it is not your practice to pray the promises of God back to him, I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to make it a part of your prayer life. God, I'm trusting this promise today that you made to me and that you claim those promises with God. You go through your Bible from Genesis to Revelation and what you're going to find is promise after promise after promise. And sometimes just reading through those promises, God, this is the God who you said you were in my life. And God, I claim that today. And God is faithful because he is an unchanging God. And so God says this should bring you strong consolation. And another passage in the New Testament, he says that we don't weep as others weep because we have a hope and a sure promise that there will be a resurrection of those in Christ. Well, what is that? That's this promise all over again. See, we don't have to weep like others weep because we believe that God keeps his promises. If he says there's a resurrection, guess what? There's a resurrection. If he said he's coming again, guess what? He's coming again. If he says that you can trust him, guess what? You can trust him. That's who he is. And if he even told one lie, the whole thing would fall apart. God is God and he is an unchanging God. But the last part of this verse is beautiful to me. He speaks of those in the church and he says, you who have fled. What did they flee from? They fled from the world. They fled from the bondage of sin. They fled the the ways of 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 religion and self-righteousness, it says, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Here's the picture that he gives. You understand that God is an unchanging God and it should bring you great comfort. And that comfort is the one that's the reason why you left and you ran away from the world and you ran to God, who is your refuge, a place of safety and a place that God is keeping you. And he is our hope in that promise that you're holding to. Hey, if you're a believer in here this morning, you should remind God of his promises every day because that's what you're holding to. We're holding to his promises, that blessed hope. In glorious appearing of our Lord and Jesus Christ. See, God is always faithful to His promises and never ever lies. This isn't a little thing. In the Old Testament, uh, there's a place called the city of refuge. A place called the city of refuge. In uh, Numbers chapter number thirty-five, we see this depicted in Numbers chapter thirty-five and. We see some parallels between the hope of Jesus and the cities of refuge. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are within easy reach of the person in need. See, the place of refuge is of no use if it can't be reached. Look, you might be here this morning and you know that you need something else. You know that what you're doing right now, but you feel like Jesus is too far away from where you are. And I want to remind you that he is just As close as he's ever been, he is a prayer away and he loves you. He has not made this in such a way that you have to do all of these deeds to get to him. No, you simply must turn away from your own ways and follow him. And he is there. He is ready to receive you. He is near to those that are of a broken heart. He loves to heal the hurting. He loves to forgive those in need of forgiveness. And if you're here this morning, I want you to know that the city of refuge, that Jesus, your refuge is near Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are open to all. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is a God that has made a way. The reality is without Jesus, we had no way to get to God. But through Jesus Christ, he made a way. He made a bridge, as it were. And that bridge was through the cross of Jesus Christ, through the person of Jesus on the cross, through his death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is open to all. Say, Pastor, but you don't know my past. You're right. I don't. And you don't know mine. But I know what we have in common today is two things. Number one, we both have sin in it. And number two, Jesus is greater than our past sin. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. Jesus stands before you today to say, I love you. You can be forgiven. And come to me. I want you in this place of refuge. I want you to find safety. I want you to let those chains of guilt and shame and depression and anxiety. I want you to let them fall away and walk in freedom. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge were places to live. See, uh, I want you to know this about Christianity today. Christianity is not something that we do on Sunday. It's who we are. It's who we're called to be Uh, when they first were called Christians at a place called Antioch. It was an accusation. It was not something that they said, call us this. They pointed the finger at them and they said they're Christians. And what they were saying was they are like Christ. Today, we adopt the term, but maybe don't live up to it. Look, if your version of Christianity is a Sunday and a Bible study Christianity, then you don't know what God has called you to. But now I would also say this. You don't know what you're missing out on. Man, you are missing out on it. That when Christ is calling us, he's calling us to so much more than just a, a Sunday and a Wednesday or maybe just a prayer here and a prayer there. No, he's calling us to live within the city of refuge, to live in a relationship with Jesus. Do you know that the city of refuge only works when you're in it? Hey, it's there, it's available, and anybody in it is safe. But if you are not living in it, you are outside of its safety. It doesn't mean that it's not effective. It just means it's not effective to you because you've not placed your faith and your hope in it. Hey, you might look at your life and go, well, I don't know if Jesus works. And I want to remind you, first and foremost, around this room, I can give you testimony after testimony that would tell you that not only does he works, but he works well. This morning, I encourage you to step inside the city of refuge and find safety and freedom. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are the only alternative for one in need. You might think, oh, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. And I'm just going to remind you, you're going to be exhausted trying to do it all of the world's ways. And you're going to find out that none of those things satisfy that only Jesus can satisfy See, there is a crucial distinction, however, between Jesus and the city of refuge. There is one thing that is different. See, the cities of refuge were for the innocent. Jesus is for the guilty. Say, why? Jesus is for the guilty. Yeah, that's all there is. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of God's glory Hey, if you're in here this morning, you might think, well, I'm a sinner. Yeah, we all are. We all need Jesus. We all need his forgiveness. See, when Jesus comes, his refuge is for all the sinners because that's all that's available. See, there's only saved sinners and lost sinners, but we're all sinners. We all need Jesus. Jesus. If you're here this morning, there's a refuge that is available, but it's going to take you fleeing the world, fleeing your way and turning and repenting of your sin and following God and finding refuge in Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Verse number 19, which hope or which promise, we could say it this way, we have as an anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast. The Bible says that those without Christ are like a wave of the sea, they're tossed to and fro. The Bible says this, that the double-minded man is unstable in all of their ways. Sometimes you see that in people in your lives, people that are just out of control. One minute they're following, trying to follow God. The next minute they're, they're leaving the faith altogether. They're just out of control. And it's because they have either never experienced the anchor or they have never or they've lost sight of the anchor. There's an old song back in the day, I believe it was Ray Bolt saying it, the anchor holds. My friend, I want you to know this. The anchor holds. Hey, I I, I personally can attest to you. I've been through some storms in my life, and I want to remind you today. The anchor holds. He doesn't move. He doesn't waver because remember, he's an unchangeable God. So when he drops anchor, he stays secure. Now, up top, it might look a mess. That's us up top. That ship might be getting pushed to and fro by the waves and getting whipped around. But below, we are secure, we are fastened, we are unmoved because of the anchor that is our hope, that is Jesus Christ. He says, we are sure and steadfast. Hey, if somebody was to look at your life right now, would they say there is a steadiness because of their relationship with Jesus? That should be our prayer, my prayer for my own life. And I tend to be an emotional guy. When if you don't know me and you get to know me, I'm, I'm very much what you see is what you get. If you ask me if I'm having a bad day and I'm having a bad day, guess what I'm going to tell you? I'm having a bad day. I just wear it on my sleeve. And I ask God, God, help me to be steady. Help me to be secure. Help me to be just faithful. And what keeps us from that at times is when we take our eyes off of Christ, off of his promise, and we start looking at the waves instead of Jesus, right? Peter was walking on the water perfectly fine as long as he was looking at Jesus. But the moment... The waves got bigger than Jesus. He began to sink. But as long as Jesus was bigger than the waves, he could walk where he needed to go. Hey, this morning, maybe the fact is, as you need to remind your problem that God is bigger than it. Maybe you need to remind yourself that God is bigger than your problem. And find yourself steady and fastened in the person of Jesus Christ. He finishes this verse And I'm going to help you. Maybe you haven't been here for our series of Hebrews. I'm going to kind of unpack a little bit. We talked about a figure by the name of Melchizedek. Then we went into how the writer of Hebrews, I believe it was Paul. We can debate that. Paul, in my opinion, says, I want to go into the subject of Melchizedek, but I don't know if you're ready for it. And he expounds, he says, I would that I could give you meat right now, but you're not mature. You need to have the milk again. You remember that? And he went through a giant parenthesis. That is to say, he kind of gives us a, a subject kind of to explain why he can't go into it so that now he can pivot back to Melchizedek. And so now as he finishes chapter six and we enter chapter seven, we're going back to the subject of this figure by the name of Melchizedek. Verse number 19, he finishes and which entereth into that. Within the veil. Who enters in? That hope. Who is that hope? That is Jesus. Where is he entering in? He's entering in. To the holy of holies into the, the holy place. That is the place where uh, uh, the cherubims would have met upon the, the mercy seat. This was the place that uh, uh, one time a year that the high priest would enter in on uh, the holy day. Or Yom Kippur as some would know it to be. They would enter into that place and they would offer an offering for the sins of the people. And, and he would go in one time a year to offer that blood. To be a picture of the blood that would be shed ultimately for all mankind in the person of Jesus Christ. So then when Jesus dies, this is what happens when Jesus dies, the final atonement is made. The final sacrifice is given and the Lamb of God is presented on the mercy seat. His blood is shed and atoned upon the mercy seat. And now the veil, the veil that kept man from God now from the top to the bottom is ripped. By the way, it's not from the bottom to the top because man did not make access to God God gave access to God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We could not get to God by ourselves. So he rips it. And so now that we can go boldly to the throne of grace this morning, when we leave this church, if you've got sins or even before we leave this church, if you have sins, you do not need to come to me and say, Pastor, it's been six years since I talked to somebody about my sins. Let me tell you all of them. Number one, I don't want to hear it. How many ever heard, I heard this term the other day, I thought it was hilarious, spilling the tea? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm literally, I'm learning things among young people. I'm like, what is spilling the tea? That sounds like a tragedy to me. I love tea, okay? Like that. And really what it is, it's sharing gossip. Look, I don't need to hear about your sins. I couldn't do anything about them. But there is one that when you tell him your sins, he can actually do something about it. The Bible says he forgives. He forgets. He removes them as far as the east is far from the west. So does he remove our transgressions from us? See, when you talk to Jesus about it, things change. When you talk to a human about it, you just get a listening ear. It might be it might feel nice. The Bible does say confess our faults one to another. But the reality is, is if you want ultimate forgiveness, if you want ultimate help, you've got to go to the one and only person that can do that, and that's Jesus Christ. We finish in verse number 20. It says this. Whither the forerunner, that's Jesus, the forerunner was one that would be sent ahead of uh, of the brigade the, they would be sent ahead to kind of clear the way to show the way the one that would go ahead of the military might and they would kind of let people know what was coming ahead and what the lay of the land was this forerunner well our forerunner is Jesus Christ who has gone before us he has gone to the mercy seat he goes to the father for us that's why Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life because he's the one he goes follow me it's this way he's the way He is the truth. He is the life. He's the forerunner. He's the forerunner. It says who is entered in uh, is for us entered. Even Jesus, who is made an high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, we're going to spend next week going through in chapter seven, this person of Melchizedek. But I want to finish on this reality that Jesus is. Because he can be trusted, because he's a a savior that cannot lie, because God and Jesus are the same. God is Jesus. Jesus, when he was brought down here, he was Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus said, I and my father are one. If you want to know what he was proclaiming in John chapter 10. They heard that. They picked up rocks to kill him because he claimed equality with God. Jesus is God. Okay, And that God. John one says in the beginning was the word capital W O R D. It's speaking of Jesus in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of man. And that light shines in darkness. And sadly, the darkness could not comprehend it. But there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And then we see that picture of John saying, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. See, Jesus is God because he's an equal part of the Godhead. He goes back to the father as God, the son, and he declares the atonement of the sacrifice as the Lamb of God. And the father receives the forgiveness of the people so that now he intercedes for us as our high priest. And that's where we're going to spend next week. Now, I want to finish and give you three things and we'll be done today. Number one, what does that mean? Number one, that means that God promises, I won't forget you. God promises, I won't forget you. Say, what do you mean? Have you ever been in such a bad place that you thought that God forgot about you? Often when you read the Psalms, you'll, you'll see this phrase, remember me, O God. It is not that God had forgotten him is that he felt forgotten by God. Hey, if you're in a season right now where it feels like God might not be doing what he used to do, maybe you're in a season where it feels like you're not as close to him. And and I know what those feelings are like, but I want to remind you, your feelings are not the promises. The promises are what matter. And the promise says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so you might feel like he's far But the promise says he's near. And so his promise says, I won't forget you. You say, but I'm going through a season. He has not forgotten you. He knows where you are. The beautiful picture of the prodigal son. The father gives the inheritance of the son. He goes into a far off country and he it, living sumptuously. He's eating the best food. He's going to the biggest parties but then eventually it runs out. He finds himself getting a job in the lowliest of place in that culture. He finds himself feeding the hogs and he finds himself in the slop. He's even getting ready to eat that which would have been just unthinkable for the Hebrew mind and, he, and he's there and the picture is beautiful that he comes to himself and he goes oh maybe I could just go be a servant in my father's house and he begins to run back to the house but my friend the beauty of that story is the father wasn't working that day for the father had not been doing that no the father was waiting that day the father was standing there going welcome home son welcome home and this morning I don't know where you are I don't know if you're a runner if you've been far from God if you've had the parties and the things of this world but I want you to know welcome home God says this morning I've not forgotten you amen Hey, God promises, I won't forget you. You're not forgotten. I know exactly where you are. I could see you when you were there in the slop. I could see you when you were there partying with your friends. I know you. You are my child. God promises, I won't forget you. It's not going to happen. Number two, what we believe based upon God's word is this. Number two, God's promises can be trusted. Say, oh, yeah, pastor, we know that. Do you? I know we have the head knowledge of that. It's interesting. Let me give you a Bible illustration of how you can know something and still not believe it. In the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 through 23, it says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and, he, and be killed and uh, be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him, that's Jesus, he took Jesus and he began to rebuke Jesus. Good luck with that, Peter. Uh, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense to me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Uh, so here's God in the, in the flesh, Jesus The God Man, and he says, "I'm going to die. I will be persecuted. I will be rejected. I will be killed. But on the third day, I'll rise." And they go, "No way, that cannot happen." And he rebukes them. Keep reading, Matthew chapter 17. Another another time. This is this is a different setting, a, a different place altogether. Matthew chapter 17. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed in the hand. This is Jesus telling them again. The Son of Man shall be betrayed in the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Or the Bible says in another place, they were full of sorrow. They were sorrowful. Matthew chapter 20. Verse number 17, and Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the twelve disciples apart in the way, and he said to them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be de- betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, and to scourge, and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. And when he did what he said, they went, huh? What? And I look at that and go, that's so ridiculous. How many times did he tell them what was going to happen? And then God whispers in my ear through the work of the Holy Spirit and goes, how many times did I tell you what was going to happen? And you still don't trust me, John. How many times have you seen my promises be true in your life, John, and you still you still are just like them. You run when you should stay. You get angry at me when you should pray and thank me. Yeah, I'm here to remind you this morning, God doesn't break promises. Hey, guess what he said? He said, I'm going to be taken. I'm going to be crucified on the third day. I'm going to rise. Guess what he did on the third day? He rose. Amen. Amen. Hey, guess what else he said? In John chapter 14, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. This is the other promise that God gives us now. God says, I'm going away to prepare a place, but I'm coming back. Spoiler alert, He's coming again. Why? Because He is an unchangeable God that does not lie. If He says it, He does it. That's who God is. That's what he does. Titus says it this way, looking for that blessed hope. Remember, that hope is a promise, that blessed promise and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But can I just give you a simple one this morning? Uh, God's also promised to meet your needs. Oh, I got quiet on that one. Oh, yeah, but like not all my needs. Yeah, all your needs. Hey, can I just give you a little bit of unlocking truth here? That right now you have everything that God said that you needed. Even if you don't believe that. Because God's faithful. And if you needed it, he'd give it to you. Because that's who God is. So if you don't have it right now, it's because God is doing a work in the in the meantime. It could be that he's waiting for you. I found that sometimes God does not reveal things to me. That is to say, he won't give things to me because I'm not ready to receive them. That if you would give it to me right now, it would ruin me. I'll give you a a funny example. First time I met my wife, obviously, she, you know, beautiful. And I was like, man, maybe maybe I'll get to date her. This is going to be awesome. You know, and and I was a wreck. Right. And I think about that now. If I would have dated her my freshman year, I would have ruined that thing. We were freshmen at college and, you know, she had very high praises for me. Remember, she literally told people I was arrogant and conceited. And now she did say I was cute, though. So that was a win. Okay, so uh, not everything was bad. But and by the way, she was right. God had to do a major work in my life. I wasn't ready. Can I remind you that it could be that there's things that you're asking God for and he's actually trying to change you to get you ready for that first. If you don't have it right now, it's because God doesn't want you to have it right now. And you need to be patient and you need to trust a God that's worthy to be trusted. Because God cannot lie. He's a good God. God's promises can be trusted. Let me give you the final one and we'll be done today. God promises, I will lead you. You know, it's interesting when he went to Andrew and Peter and those uh, disciples that he called he didn't say well figure it out it's not what he told him what did he say to him what's the two words church follow follow me he didn't say well you know I can give you a little bit of direction and then you guys kind of put all the other pieces together It's not what he said said, follow me and I will make you what you're intended to be. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you those that are used for my glory and for my purpose. Follow me. And the simplicity of that can be lost so easily. Follow me. I saw Micah. Micah, come on up here, buddy. Come on, hurry, hurry. This is my uh, big guy, 12 years old now. Sitting in church. I like this shirt, by the way. Looks good. Fresh. All right. Micah, you're going to help me this morning, okay? Can you do that? I'm worried, okay? All I need you to do is just follow me, okay? Just follow me. Are you following me? Okay, you're still following me? Okay. Now, this is what I want you to do. Let's try this again, though, okay? I want you to turn the other way. And I want you to close your eyes and I want you to follow me. You're cheating. I just said, <laughs> You peeker. He's like. <laughs> the reality is, is oftentimes we act. This is actually, this works in the illustration. Praise the Lord, All right. Oftentimes what happens with us Is we act like we're following God, but we have our own agenda. And then every once in a while we'll kind of peek up and go, okay, where's God? Ah." And it's more so because we're just trying to like justify ourselves than actually follow him. But You know, can I just say this? Following God is actually really simple. It's not easy, but it's really simple. You just have to keep your eyes on him and stay with him and you can follow him. But in the same way, the moment you turn your eyes away from him and you choose your own direction, it's very easy to lose track of where he wants you in your life. And What does God say? Follow me. Don't figure it out. Follow me. You don't need to figure it out. You need to follow me. The Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. You know what? Uh, An old preacher back in the day said the steps and the stops are ordered by God. Sometimes the Lord says, "Okay, just wait here. Okay, now take the next step. Okay, now hold here. Now take the next step. And what I want to do is I want to live a life that's so in tune with what God says that I'm simply saying, okay, God, what's next? God, where do I go from here? And I trust you. Thanks, Mike. Philippians 2.13 says, for it is God which worketh in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's God that shows us what we're supposed to be doing out of his good pleasure, not what we want, but what he wants. Psalm the psalmist wrote this, for thou art my rock and my fortress, therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me. God, for your name, lead me, guide me, is what he says. This week, uh, as I was preaching to the teens, I, I want to finish with this today. I looked out on a group of teenagers and some of them have been in other conferences and churches and things like that. They had been to many things and we had a wonderful time and The last session we came together and it was the last time that I was going to be preaching and I leaned into this reality. How many of us today have a list of things that we have already told God that we would do that we're not doing? Things that you've surrendered? Things that you have made a promise to God about? What would happen in the world If everybody went back and just did what we told God we would do. I'm not even talking about new covenants, new promises. I'm talking about all the things that we've already said, God, I'm going to follow you. And then let's be honest, life happened. But, you know, as much as we break our promises, God never does. Some of you this morning you struggle with promises from God because you've lived a life. You've heard parents and grandparents. Some of you have been in husband and relationship lives, uh, relationships where they have lied to you. They have cheated on you. They have hurt you. Some of you have been with bosses that have stolen. Some of you have been in churches where where pastors have stolen, or they have had adulterous relationships, and you have all of this worldly reasons. All of these worldly reasons not to trust anybody. And that's fine in the idea of the fact that man fails, but watch this. But it's dangerous when we take those characteristics and we bring them to God. God is not man that he should fail or faint. And when God says, I promise. You can take it to the bank. He will accomplish it because he's the same yesterday, today and forever. So God this morning says to his church, he says, church, I promise, I promise that you can trust my promises. I promise that I'm taking care of it all. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would work in this place today. God, I am incapable to meet the needs and honestly, uh, just Really wanting your power to do it. The best that man could do this morning is manipulation and we don't need manipulation. We need transformation. We need a God that comes in through the work of the Holy Spirit and makes not good people better, but makes broken people new. And God, I pray, Lord, that that's the work of today. God, I pray, Lord, that we would see that there's a God that when he says, I promise that he will finish the work. And I pray, Lord, for every heart in here this morning. And I don't know the situations of every person here, but I know that you're a God who loves and cares for each one of us. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed at this time. Just feel that in the Lord this morning. I always want to let the Holy Spirit do the leading. Maybe you're here this morning, you need to be honest. I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you. I would never do that. I would never do that. But you would just say, Pastor, pray for me. I don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know the Lord as my personal Savior. You would just be honest and you would just say, Pastor, would you pray for me about my relationship with Jesus? Would would anybody be bold enough and courageous enough just to raise your hand and say, Pastor, would you pray for me about that? I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Would you pray with me about that? Anybody just raise your hand where you are. I promise you I won't call you out. I won't make you feel weird. I, I, I would never do that. This is simply so that I can pray for you mind you my prayer does not save you it is your relationship with Jesus Christ that must be your salvation hey maybe Christian you're here this morning and I won't make you raise your hand on this but maybe in this time of prayer right now you need to say God I need to trust your promises God I've been acting like you're like the rest of us and God you are an unchanging God I can trust you today God, I want to put your promises in the place of my life where they're supposed to be that bring great comfort to me knowing that you're a God who never fails. Maybe just in the quietness of this moment, you just go back to that moment with God and say, God, I trust you. I trust your promises. Heavenly Father, God, you are a God that looks into every heart right now. God, you're the Holy Spirit that is working and convicting and moving right now. And God, I pray, Lord, that simply that we, your people, would be surrendered to your will and to your way. God, that we would trust you with every part of our being, for you alone are worthy. You are a God that is worthy to be trusted, who says, I promise and will always come through. And God, we ask this, and the name that is above every other name, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is at the name of Jesus we ask this, Amen.